Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 11th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Just under 600,000 people who do not have a private or an occupational pension will be enrolled into a scheme by the government in 2022. Minister Regina Doherty says workers aged between the ages of 23 and 60 who earn more than €20,000 a year will have money deducted from their pay, whether they can afford it or not. A recent iReach survey found that 26% of people who do not have a pension say they cannot afford one. In a relatively rare interview with her local radio station. We will ask the Minister this morning about her pension plans. We'll also ask her about if she intends spending taxpayers' money on going to court to challenge the Data Protection Commission, an office government funds to the tune of about €17 million a year in order to make independent findings that protect the public. And we'll also ask Minister Doherty why she could not find a suitable person to act as a media advisor to her for a salary of €101,114 or less and why she needs to pay her spin doctor €6,000 a year more than that. And the Minister has already eight staff in her office. She's already got four constituency staff. She's most likely to have two civilian drivers currently and she has a, a press office within her department whose job it is to make sure that the projects she's involved in within her department are communicated properly uh, to the general public. And what she's doing is, by spending this money, she's spending the equivalent to three and a half staff nurses on an individual who is simply creating a message uh, for the uh, protection of the Minister herself. Minister Regina Doherty is with us. Good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for coming in to us uh, today. Uh, as I say, there's uh, quite a, a bit for us to uh, discuss, but perhaps uh, we could talk uh, about uh, the money there that we heard about uh, that would pay for the equivalent of three and a half staff nurses. Uh, you're spending it on a, a media advisor, a spin doctor. You're breaching uh, the government cap on salaries. Why so? The first thing I'll say to you is I think good communications is incredibly important. Um, I think one of the criticisms that would be yielded against um, government, and this is any government, is that it's not just good enough to do what you're doing in the interest of people. They have to know exactly what you're doing. And so when I went looking last year uh, for somebody, obviously I went looking for the best. I think you and I well know we've been uh, debating in this studio for nearly 10 years now that I have a habit of sometimes putting not just one foot into my own mouth, but two foot or two feet when I open my mouth. So I went looking mm. for the best. Um, we interviewed quite Is that a why you of went people? to ground over the course of the last couple of years? As I said at the outset, it's a relatively rare interview with the Minister, who, as I said to you, O'Connell, who first reported on this story, used to come on at the drop of a hat to talk about the weather or the price of peas, but today is quite often not available well, because, because as I said, just like to finish the point, as I said to you, O'Connell, it's the same Minister who said maybe Enda Kenny should retire. 
I think um, I'm privileged enough to be a senior cabinet minister for the last two and a half years. Um, Leo appointed me to the largest department in the state with some 21 billion euros worth of a budget. I have six and a half thousand staff in every single town and county in the country. Um, it's an incredible privilege to be this position, uh, to have this position, and I take it very, very seriously. Mm. And so um, the amount of time I probably do have to do media um, is probably a lot diminished. And I think that's the right thing to do. But that's why it's so important when you do do media that it has to be good, effective uh, and well communicated. Mm. We have and you don't shoot yourself in the foot by saying something like Enda Kenny should retire. Uh, some people uh, would make well, the I think claim. all you're doing is describing how much I have matured over the last couple of years as a politician. So, or anyway. disappeared, uh, being no, kept out haven't. of the media uh, perhaps Actually, uh, by I'm a professional. Uh, some people would say uh, there are people in this world vocal. who know the price of anything but no, don't know the value of anything. No, I think uh, in fairness, Michael, I'm probably is it one value of the most for vocal money? cabinet ministers that we have. Is it value for money, Minister, to spend on a spin doctor the same amount of money that would pay for three and a half staff nurses well, as Padder Tobin was claiming I think, well, first of all, Padder said a lot of things that were not true and I think he plucked his statistics out of the sky, which is not unusual for him, right? Um, the first thing I'll say to you is, is that every government minister has two advisors, one to help us with policy and the presentation of policy and one to help us with communications. Mm. I think what was attempted to be done by Padder, which is an awful pity because his party have communications help, as did he have when Sinn Féin for donkey's years. Um, it's good communications, I think, is a vital part of a good democracy. To be transparent and available and to be able to explain yourself what you're doing in the work of your department, mm. I think, is vital. What I think is an awful pity is that we're seeking to demonise a person who is a civil servant for the last 25 years for moving from one government agency to another on exactly the same terms and conditions, with the exception now is that he has a hell of a lot more pressure and a hell of a lot more. He now works seven days a week as opposed mm. to his five days a week. And I think that's a pity. Every si- Excuse me, every single cabinet minister has um, two advisors and I have two advisors Mm. and it's no different. He moved on his existing terms and conditions from one government agency to another. Oh, and I think that was made clear in all of the discussions we've had up to now. And it isn't uh, an issue of personalising this, I don't think. I think it is an issue of the government agreeing on what the maximum salary for such a role should be and then deciding... We can't get anybody for less than €101,000. That doesn't make a, a lot of sense to a lot of people listening to us this well, morning. Well, I think in, in essence, in this particular case, and so when the gentleman moved, um, the person that replaced him was taken on, who will only be replacing him for the time of his secondment, because when he finished with me, obviously he goes back to his former a good position. Deal. Well, that's the civil service for you. Mm. I mean, they have a, a tremendous responsibility and a very difficult job mm. in a lot of circumstances. And so when he finishes with me, he will go back to his previous job on exactly the same conditions mm. that he left it on. But could you I not think find that's right and fair. Could I you? think that's only right and fair. And Could what I was going to say to finish the subject is that the person that has replaced him in his current mm. or former role is on significantly mm. less than For, what he would have been on. Um, uh, and so in actual a, a fact, former, there's a savings a, a to the former, state, Michael, not a, a, an expense. A, a former state. advisor to Minister Nocton, I think. Uh, could you not find somebody we for a hundred thousand euros? A significant number of interviews, yeah. But really, I, I think I got the best, Michael. Okay, well, I think I did. Delighted for you. I'm sure people are as well. Uh, and when well, I think in fairness, as you have just said, that you will see a marked improvement in my communication skills over the last twelve months. And so there, I think uh, I think I did get the best. Yeah. Okay, very good. Mm-hmm.
leave people uh, to make up their own minds uh, on whether that is value for money because let's not forget it is their money uh, that uh, you're talking about uh, and uh, let's as uh, is every public servant paid for by the state mm, oh absolutely yes uh, and let's uh, talk uh, about uh, the money that's uh, spent on the data protection commissioner uh, and the 70 million that the government gives to that office on an annual basis and you're considering taking that office to court. Can you make sense of that? Well, I certainly can because I think she's wrong um, and I think it's incumbent upon me to defend my uh, department's policy and my government's policy and I think she's got it wrong. But I do find myself in a very unusual legal limbo, Michael, insofar as that I don't have anything to take or to test in a court of law yet. Mm. So we await an enforcement notice that I'm told is imminent and when it's imminent or when it's received, we will look at it obviously carefully and consider what it says and then make a decision as to whether we need to challenge it or don't. And the enforcement order that you're talking about is one that would require uh, government departments to stop using the public services card that is outside of social welfare purposes and to delete the information on three and a half million or or thereabouts that has already been collated. So there's a couple of things that she has um, intimated in the findings of the report that she issued to us in the middle of Well, she spelled out a little bit more than intimated. I mean, she's basically said that the government is acting illegally. Well, again, if that's the case, then we would welcome an enforcement notice Mm. so that the government can respond to the report findings Mm. because the findings have no legal basis at the moment. But, yeah, she's she's under the impression that our legislation doesn't empower us uh, to make decisions across all government's departments. We obviously disagree. Um, She's under the impression that we shouldn't be keeping uh, retention uh, of the people's data that they have Mm. given us, for example, uh, an ESB bill or a phone bill so that you can prove where you live, road, you know, 123 Road A, had a county louds. Uh, we disagree. Um, the structure of our legislation defines it such that as long as somebody is a recipient um, of a service of the Department of Social Welfare, we have to keep these information mm. uh, on file, as has been instructed by the Ombudsman, that when we don't, we can't contest cases. And so you have two different competing arms of the state here telling mm. us different stuff. But we're quite comfortable, I think, with um, our legal position and are quite happy to defend that legal position so mm. as to continue a policy that provides efficient government services to the three and a half million people who have a PSC card. Mm. So. Uh, and when you say she has a, a view, you mean Helen Dixon, the commissioner. Well, it's the commissioner. But it it, it's the office. I mean, it's a, a little bit more detailed than that sounded uh, or may have sounded to some people listening. And just to put it into context, we're yeah. talking about a very big office that spent two years carrying out an investigation into the legality of this card. Yeah. Uh, and they published a very substantial report and found it to be illegal. Uh, and that is pretty much the state's view because it's the state that funds this body well, to no, act independently true, uh, to act independently as a watchdog in order to protect the public. So uh, the taking state- taking this office to court is a little bit like taking on Gardaí Connor to court, is it not? No, of course it's not. And the legislation that underpins or that governs the data protection office and hmm. the commissioner um, leaves room for anybody to challenge him. So that's like saying that if the Data Protection Commission investigated you, Mike Reed, mm. and decided that you were A, B and C, mm. that you didn't have a right or a legal right to challenge that. Of course, everybody has a legal right to challenge everything in this country. That's our democracy. Mm. So the difficulty I have, though, Michael, is that there was a fanfare of a report issued um, in, uh, in the middle of August uh, with a set of serious with, instructions. Which you had sight of a year before. With no, no, we didn't. We got the report on the 15th of August. Yes, but you had the draft report. Which was, was significantly different to the report Well, that's that was not issued. what Helen Dixon said. Well, then, Helen okay, Dixon gave doctors differ, Michael and patients die. So what, what were the, the report sig- is 
significant can, can difference. Can you tell us what the significant difference is? So there were. was four of the recommendations in the draft report had disappeared. There was some 60 new pages of documentation um, that we had never seen before. There was significant difference, differences mm. between the draft. Uh, but like that's, that's neither here nor there. The report was issued on the 15th of August. The Commissioner said that there, there was no significant difference in the findings. Well, I disagree. There were 70 new pages in the findings. And so I'm not sure what she thinks is contained in the findings, but there were 70 new pages. There was a series of recommendations from the draft report that had just been dropped mm. with no explanation. But either way, the heel of the hunt is on the 15th of August, we were given a set of instructions with timelines of seven days, 21 days uh, and 60 days, um, all of which has no legal basis. uh, And we await an enforcement notice. And I said to you, when and if it comes, we will study it very carefully. And if it disagrees with what we believe is the legal right and authority that we have under the the, the 2005 legislation, well, then we'll have no choice but to defend government policy and the delivery of public sector services to um, the three and a half million people who have a PSC. But when you prove uh, the commissioner wrong, I presume she'll have to go. Well, I don't think like everybody is entitled to a view on the law. And that's mm. why we have courts, Michael. So she has one set of opinions uh, on her interpretation and her office's interpretation of the law. We have a different interpretation of the law. You see, like a lot of people listening to us this morning, Minister, I got up very early to come into work uh, and uh, I did that so as I can earn a living. And uh, when I go home at the end of the week, I look at my payslip and a, a lot of it will be gone in taxes and that will in part be used to pay for things like the Data Protection Commissioner. 17 million of euro uh, of government money goes to that office. And if that office is making findings against the government which result in this farcical situation of the government being in court against the commission well then somebody has to go. Uh, If the government proves to be right in all of this surely there's questions about uh, if the commissioner's role is tenable or not. Well I don't think so. I think the um, Data Protection Commission office that we have is held in the highest of esteem and not just in Ireland I think Mm. right across the globe. Um, She is an incredibly respected lady but Mm. like we talk about the commission as if it is only Helen Dixon. There are some hundreds mm. of people working Absolutely, there. Absolutely. Yes, um, yes, there's yes. an incredible amount of mm. talent, both legal and policy basis. The simple fact of the matter here is that we have a different interpretation of a piece mm. of legislation. So you have a view, I have a different view. The only person that can adjudicate on which one of us is right is a court of law. But as uh, I said to you, Michael, mm-hmm. I don't have something mm. that's legally challengeable at the moment. And until I do, I can't tell you what we're going to do next other than continue on providing an efficient public service to people mm-hmm. um, who, some three and a half million Irish citizens who have a PSE card that want to be able to access government services in an efficient and timely manner. And do you accept that if uh, the courts find in favour of uh, the government, it will in effect be the court saying that the government is the only soldier marching in line uh, because your view is at odds not just with the Data Protection Commissioner, it's at odds with the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, uh, Digital Rights Ireland uh, and many uh, good minds and have passed an eye over And in the context when we have these this. conversations, Michael, nobody ever tells me is that our government decision is in line with the 3.5 million people who have volunteered to get a PSE card so they can access public services in an efficient manner. Did they volunteer? At the end of the day, well, people get invited to come in. Mm. Yeah. There's nobody going to what, what drag you into a, an intro office what, to make what you sit that, down and have... What, what, what was that uh, piece of media advice you got at 107,000 euro or whatever to come up with this thing of compulsory uh, but uh, not obligatory? Well, actually, or mandi- what was it? Sorry, of, just remind me because it was so bizarre. Of all of the findings yeah. that the Data Protection Commission's office issued on the 15th mm. of August, the only one that reconfirms uh, my position of last year is the first finding which says that it is um, compulsory for uh, all social welfare services and so 
think that media uh, advice I got was spot on. Uh, and what, what what about people who wanted passports or wanted to get Susie grants? Or Again, I, I, it's a misnomer. You don't use a PSE card to get a Susie grant. I know the, protection, mm. the, the, the office said that you did, but it has never been a requirement to, mm. to do a Susie appeal. Um, and yes, yes, you absolutely can get a passport today if you have a PSE card in the post within two days, mm. which is a hell of a lot more efficient than it used to be and when you had you, to go to the guard, the station, get your photographs yeah. signed, go into Mount Street, you know. Oh, yes. All of it is you, much more efficient. You, but again, if I say to Michael, if you don't have a card and you, you don't, if you have, don't have want it, a card. Well, if you don't have it, then mm. you do it the old way. Mm. Like, it's all about choice. It's not about making anybody do anything. It's all about choice. If you want to get government services in a really fast, mm. efficient online manner, then a PSE card will so help you, you do that. You, and if you don't, then so, go back so, to the so old way. So you can choose to be part of a mandatory scheme. Well, no, it is mandatory for social welfare mm, payments. Okay. And that's what the law is. So. Let's uh, talk uh, about pensions then, if we can, Minister. Uh, I mean, there's obviously uh, a crisis looming and uh, we need to do something uh, about uh, an ageing population and a population that is not uh, preparing for getting older and retiring yeah. and so on. Uh, and the scheme that you've come up with, uh, we'll see uh, people uh, sign into pension schemes and their employers contribute to it. Will the government be giving anything to it? We will. So, like, so first of all, it's not a crisis um, but what we definitely have is a situation now where people are living longer and much more healthier lives. And when you retire at 66, like years ago, when people would retire, most people would have passed away by the time they were 70. Now, thankfully, people are living until well into their 80s and their 90s, and it's great. And so what we've got is in the public sector, two thirds of people who are currently working don't save anything um, to yield themselves from what mm. will be a salary decrease once they reach 66. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what we're trying to do is to introduce um, a pension saving scheme that will incentivise people in the public sector to save a few bob now, uh, incentivised by matching funds from their employer and a top-up payment by the state, so that when they do get to 66, they'll have more money than the state pension to live on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to be able to do more stuff. Um, and in what, their what, what if they can't uh, afford? So then they, they just opt out, Michael. So I know so, you said that mm-hmm. in your preamble, yeah. that we'd be taking money off people who can't afford it. We won't. People well, can you, opt you, out if they want to yeah, opt out. They, but they'll be opted in for six months, won't they? They'll be opted yeah. in for the first mm. six months. Yeah. And um, then they can go one, look for the money back. At one and a half percent. So yeah. the, the, mm. the scheme is going to start hopefully in 2022. Yeah. Um, it'll take 10 years to bed in. Um, we will start deducting one and a half percent of people's wages. It'll be matched by one and a half percent of your employees matching funds and then the state will top mm. you up. And over the next 10 years, that will go from one and a half percent to three percent to four and a half percent to six percent, mm. equally matched by your employees yeah. or your employer's funds and the top up by the state. At any point after the six months, you can opt out and get your money back. It's mm. no problem. Okay, and you're not going to see your pay increase obviously by 6%, are you? Well, over the next 10 years, I mean, the average pay increases mm. at the moment is just under 3%. Yeah, but, That's what wages but are But employers will have by. to put it into pension schemes for people now, so they're not going to increase pay. Well, if, if at the moment your pay is increasing by 3% and next yes. year your, mm. your employee has to put one and a half of that into your pension scheme, mm. well, then that'll be part of your negotiations. Mm. And that's why we've listened. We did a, a really long So this is effectively a pay cut for people? No, it's, well, first of all, they haven't received it yet. So it certainly can't mm. be a cut. We did a but, public uh, consultation well, over the last 18 months. Some 300 people mm. made written submissions to us. Mm. We did roadshows in all of the main cities um, and a tremendous amount of people showed up for them. The straw man that was issued for the purposes of that conversation is very different to the memo that I brought to Cabinet mm. last week because we listened to the suggestions that both employees and employers made to us mm. and we changed the model. Because at the end of the day, when this goes live in 2022, what I'm absolutely adamant about is that I will have the buy-in of the vast majority of people who they will be 
positively affected by the changes. Mm. Um, employers, you know, your natural response you, is probably to think that employers won't want to do this. In the absolute main, employers have come and told us that they care about their mm. employees. They want to provide for them in their But they only have years. so much money. They do, yes. And yeah. that's why we've mm. taken on board their advice to slow down. The original mm. straw man was to introduce it um, over six years at a 1% increase mm. each year for the six years. They've asked us to slow down the phase-in yeah. process and we've done it now. So, 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 so they can, off- so they can offset what they're putting into pensions by not increasing pay. Well, no, because employees, employers, Michael, will get the opportunity to d- make deductions of their tax bill, mm. whatever they're paying. Yes, uh, but into every the time they increase pay, 6% will come out of, uh, you know, it's an additional cost. No, not necessarily, because yes. what they'll be able to do is, is when they do their tax returns at the end of every year, mm. they will be able to deduce the amount of pension contributions that they've made. So you can't deduct it twice. Mm. Like, that wouldn't be tolerated. And so, yes, the phase-in project or prospective years has been asked us to be increased from six years to ten years, which we've done that. Mm. Uh, we've listened to employers insofar as that if there are companies in difficulties, they have to have appeal mechanisms. We've listened to everything that they've given us, mm. uh, all the suggestions over the, uh, the public consultation period. Um, and we've changed the model, and that's the Cabinet memo and, that I brought and, and, two and, weeks ago. And will it be a state scheme, or will it be some company who will oversee this that is in it for making a profit? Well, so there's no profit to be made in this scheme. Um, the state will establish what we're going to call a central processing authority. Um, there is some suggestions at the moment that maybe somebody like the NTMA or the Revenue Commissioners can, can do it, and we haven't reached a final conclusion. We won't mm. do that between so now and January. it will be a state-led scheme. It'll be a state st- uh, authority, and then there will be options for you as a private sector worker to be able to pick either a state option or a private sector option. In equal measures, um, people distrust the state and the industry probably in equal measures and so I'm uh, absolutely adamant I'm going to give people choice. So when you opt in or when you're automatically enrolled on you know, January 2022 you will have the choice to pick your provider and you'll have a choice to pick your risk so you'll have a low risk, a medium risk uh, or a moderate risk. But the choice is yours the pension pot will be yours you'll be able to see it on a monthly basis by logging on to the Central Processing Authority's website with your own passcode. You'll be able to see your pension pot grow and if you leave LMFM you know, in the middle of that year, your pension pot will travel with you to your new employer. So we're trying to make it as simple as possible, try to cap um, the expenses so that nobody is going to get rich off the back of these 600,000 people. But just to ensure that when people reach a retirement age of 66 um, or 67 in the future, mm. that they'll have an extra few bob over and above the state pension. Or a hundred as the case may be. Minister, yeah. we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very Thank much, you very much for much. coming in. It was nice to see you in here. That's uh, the Minister for Employment Affairs and Social Protection, Regina Doherty. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. More than half a million people are on hospital waiting lists in uh, this country. That's according to the official figures. Fianna Fáil believes uh, the real figure to be much higher, possibly in the region of one million people waiting on a hospital appointment and says that that figure should be made public. The Minister for Health is to announce uh, proposals this week, which he hopes will bring down the amount of people and the length of time that they are waiting to be seen in hospitals, eliminating private medicine in public hospitals, the Minister feels could free up over 2,000 beds across the country and reduce waiting lists by 25%. But there is no doubt it is a significant problem. And some 13,000 people have travelled to Belfast in the course of the last three years, where because of having to wait on treatment here, they've gone 
to the Kingsbridge Private Hospital and being treated there uh, in bills that have been paid for effectively by the HSE as part of a cross-border directive service. Mark Regan is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Kingsbridge Private Hospital and he's on the line. And uh, very good morning to you, Mark, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. How complicated is it for people to do this? Um, good morning. I, I think in the surface of things, when you start to read about it, it can look more complex than it actually is. It actually is as simple as it would be goes through the normal HSE pathway, whereby you visit your GP, you get a referral, and then you make an appointment to see the consultant. And that's where I think it begins to differ. You make the appointment and you're in full control of your health care thereafter. And you do that immediately the day you leave your GP. So you're not waiting for a few years to be seen. So it, it can be complex when you look at forms, but the big thing we've made a difference in Belfast is that we have our own cross-border team. We have a concierge team. They complete all of the forms and paperwork for you. You check them and sign them and pop them in the post. So it really couldn't be simpler the way we've made it at Kingsbridge. Uh, and what type of treatments uh, can people avail of? Well, no doubt uh, most of your listeners will have seen the buses coming from uh, Cork and Kerry for cataracts. They'll have heard of the hip replacements, knee replacements that we're renowned for. But we do everything that can be done in one of the public HSE hospitals is eligible to be used for, to provide this scheme. So things like tonsillectomies, hernia repairs, mm. hysterectomies for females, gallbladders, carpal tunnel, circumcision, anything really, absolutely anything that you can get in a local hospital, such as our Lady Alert in Drogheda, is eligible to be used via this HSE scheme. And it is a HSE scheme. It's not a private hospital thing that we have created it's just another route that is, is perhaps not well known throughout Ireland, mm. whereby you can go the normal traditional route or you can use this HSE scheme and travel abroad. Abroad usually means a plane, but luckily for us in Ireland, that means getting on the train or the car and crossing the border to Belfast. Into a different jurisdiction. Into uh, a different jurisdiction. Uh, uh, and undoubtedly, uh, having a, a cataract removed is a life-changing operation uh, and uh, can literally give people their sight back. Uh, we've uh, spoken a number of times with Michael Healy-Ray, who's bust hundreds of people north of the border to have cataracts removed, uh, as you mentioned ago, as well as some other procedures. And uh, he was encouraging people uh, here to do likewise. Indeed, we heard from a lot of people who were saying, God, I didn't realise that could be done. Uh, but do you need a, a, an organised uh, type of approach to it in the way that they do it in Kerry and Cork? I think they've got to be commended the way they do it in Kerry and Cork, without a doubt. Uh, my own father was in Kingsbridge yesterday for, for surgery. He's just recovering today and hopefully the home. And while I was in visiting him um, just after surgery, sure enough, there was a bus there from Cork, which I still find unbelievable. It's fantastic and it's great that it all comes together. But you don't need to be doing it in a group. It's individuals, and particularly for people coming from, from Drogheda on the East Coast. Um, you're only an hour and 20 minutes at most away from the hospital, whereas the buses coming up are doing a five, six, seven-hour journey. So that's why they do it in a cohesive mm-hmm. on, a, on, a, on a bus together to help people. But certainly if you're in Drogheda, it's uh, the train or the bus up the road and in as individual people. So you don't need to go through um, any politicians to do this. It can be done on an individual basis. It's just simply giving us a call and we take you through that whole journey uh, and, as an individual person. Uh, and just in terms of qualifying uh, for 
the procedures uh, in Kingsbridge or elsewhere uh, in the north or in uh, other European countries, as uh, the case may be. Tell us a little bit more about that, because uh, whilst we have a, a terrible problem here with waiting lists, long waiting times, an awful lot of people waiting, it's not the case with all procedures. I mean, some people are seeing, uh, depending on uh, their condition or what treatment they need, uh, very quickly. So when is it that you qualify? Well, the minute you leave your GP is mm. the minute you qualify. So you, you don't have to be on a waiting list. Even if you, you could be seen pretty quickly here? You, you could liter- Yes, even if you could be seen quickly there. So you literally could get in the car the minute you leave your GP with that referral letter and you could drive to Belfast. Now, I'm not advocating people doing mm-hmm. that. Mm. It's better to phone ahead and obviously get an appointment. But in theory, that could happen. They could phone, they could get an appointment the same day and they could head to Kingsbridge to see a consultant. So your waiting time, if you use this HSE directive, is effectively one day, and we endeavour to see all patients to get the consultant within a week or so. Um, so there should be no delays, it's a big thing. In terms of eligibility, you must be resident in Ireland, so you must be paying your taxes through Ireland, you can't be here as a visitor, but if you are resident, um, as in maybe coming from another European state and working and living here, then you're now eligible to use the scheme mm. thereafter, as okay. long as you're resident here and working here. Uh, and once you've seen a GP, it's not that you have to be on a waiting list here for six yeah, months or no. anything like that? Absolutely not. You don't need to be on the list at all. The key is the referral from the GP. That's the only thing you need is eligibility. If you have that referral in your hand, you're fit to come to Kingsbridge. Okay. Well, I think that will be of uh, great interest to a a lot of people. Uh, We'll hear more on reducing waiting lists here in this uh, jurisdiction over the course of uh, the day today. But we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Mark Regan is uh, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Kingsbridge Private Hospital in Belfast. Michael Reed on LMFM. Just as a word of warning, if uh, there are young ears near your radio, perhaps uh, you'd uh, like to turn your radio off or close those young ears because of what we're about to talk about. We're about to talk about sex. Uh, But it's probably more a conversation for men uh, because it's probably something that is of a more relevance uh, to men than women. Of course, women have a a role in it, uh, but how important that is is neither here or there. At least uh, that's the impression uh, you'd get from what I'm about to read for you, which says it is the very nature of the act that the man plays the active role and takes the initiative while the woman is a comparatively passive partner whose function it is to accept and experience. For the purpose of the sexual act, it is enough for her to be passive and unresisting, so much so that it can take place without her volition while she is in a state where she has no awareness at all of what is happening, for instance, when she is asleep or unconscious. Now, uh, if uh, that did cause any offence and uh, you're thinking about uh, taking a complaint against me or the programme or the radio station, I should mention that I I was quoting St. John Paul II. Uh, This has been brought to our attention by Mary McAleese, who's uh, made those quotes public, uh, and they come from his book, Love and Responsibility, and the former president has been saying that it highlights uh, the church's view on women. And... uh, Certainly very interesting views uh, from St. John Paul II on uh, sexual relationships. Uh, Let's uh, talk about this uh, with Brendan Butler, who's a a member of We Are Church Ireland. Uh, A very good morning to you, uh, Brendan. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Uh, The 
former president makes a very interesting point, doesn't she, about the church's attitude and deliberately making women powerless and that it was using <clears throat> a logic comparable uh, in certain respects of that of a rapist. That was the view of uh, Father Sean Fagan on what uh, the Pope said. And it certainly would seem to be a valid view. Yes, uh, this came about uh, during a conference uh, in Trinity College, which we sponsored, and it's Mary McAleese and a sister from America, Sister Joan Chichester, and uh, she's uh, a Dominican sister, and both of them have been in trouble with the Vatican, you know, over the years. So it was in that context of about two, uh, you know, two-hour conference on the role of women in the Catholic Church, and that Mary McAleese, <coughs> you know, she said she had read the book and she read that out. And just and we were all absolutely astounded. Mm. But when you look back on it, there always has an ambiguity about uh, the role of a woman once she's married, uh, that uh, she should agree at all times to have sex with her husband. She should agree to have sex or she should have sex against her will. Uh, I don't know if you could say agree, but she should have sex against her will uh, and her husband can have sex with her even if she's asleep or unconscious. Yeah, well, you see, marital, the rape within marriage was sort of always accepted. The blind eye, even in Ireland, it's only 19 years ago that the rape within marriage has been criminalised. Well, the, you know, they had a, they, what do they call it? Conjugal rights. Yes, yes, and you had a right over the body of, uh, of your wife, whether she agreed or consented or not. Because, you see, the primary purpose of marriage was the procreation of children. Mm. And she was... And pleasure had nothing to do with it. You know, and pleasure... And it, it, even it became worse because St. Augustine in the early age... <clears throat> He, he proposed, and has been accepted ever since, that original sin was transmitted through the pleasure in the sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. I don't know what sin is, let alone... Shocking. When you think of that, it's shocking stuff. And even, so, there's a feast day of the purification of Mary. Uh, you know, after giving birth, you were sort of impure, and even for her, and my mother, mm. I remember, I, well, I <laughs> didn't remember it, but she did have to go to, to a church, and there was a special ceremony for women when they gave birth to children, mm. as mm. if there was something impure. Yeah, that, and most women listening to you, you know, it, that, that has to resonate with them. Yeah, they, needed to, be, they, they needed to be cleansed, uh, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, people uh, listening uh, will know that a lot of priests have uh, have uh, been silenced by the Vatican, banished uh, in some cases. Uh, Father Iggy, Father Tony Flannery, Brian Darcy, yeah. many others. Uh, Father Sean Fagan is one of those. And I think Mary McAleese has made a very interesting point that he's been silenced by the Vatican because he took exception to John Paul saying uh, that you could have sex with your wife against her will or when she's asleep or unconscious. And John Paul has been made a saint. And I'm just reading the Bible there, and St. Paul, in a letter to the Ephesians, he says quite clearly, the husband is the head of the wife. Wives should obey their husbands in everything. Now, that is St. Paul's straightforward. I'm not changing a word or an iota in it. Wives should obey their husband in everything. Mm. So that means in everything, sex, doesn't matter what it is, and that is the attitude that has come down through the centuries. And that's what Mary McAleese was trying to, uh, you know, highlight. 
And instead of that, then, we have all... In the, at the front of the Irish Catholic this week has, you know, Mary McAleese should apologise to the Pope and all of that type. So there is a reaction immediately saying, oh, there's John Paul II, he's the saint. Mm. He couldn't have said that. But that was the quite... That was the... Well, she yeah, quote she quoted John Paul II. Uh, I mean, it wasn't that he he, he said it uh, and uh, wasn't thinking. This was a considered opinion that he he wrote in a, a published uh, book called Love and Responsibility. And it has to be said that if uh, people were to follow the teachings of John Paul II in Love and Responsibility, uh, well, then they could find themselves in front of a, a judge and uh, they could spend a very significant term in prison uh, and. Then and be placed on uh, the sex offenders register as a rapist. Yes, yes, and uh, well, it, it, that's why women now are beginning to, you know, we have the consent movement, Me Too movement, and it, it, as we know in Ireland, they, nothing happened within the state uh, changing laws unless the church agreed to it, because church and state were one and the other, mm. and that is why marital rape, you know, it, it, it was accepted, totally accepted, you know, until 1990. And even now, there only has been about three or four cases, I'm just reading, about uh, that have come up in the criminal courts about marital rape. Mm. And even then, sentences have been very ambiguous depending on the judges involved. Mm. So there is a very still ambiguous sort of background to this, you know, that... Because, uh, as you know, we hadn't got divorced. And I've often heard of a woman telling me, she said uh, she was being physically and mentally and sexually abused by her husband. She went to confession and the priest told her to go back. Because, you know, he he, he gave her, you know, absolution. He said, you have to go back because... I think most of us could tell similar stories, but uh, rape is rape. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, this is, uh, comes down to the idea of knowing right from wrong uh, and uh, that you don't need it to be on uh, the statute books. You don't need uh, to be taught from uh, the pulpit what is right or wrong. I mean, we should all have an understanding of what is right and wrong. And if you rape your wife, you rape your wife, and that's doing the wrong thing. It may be very difficult for her to prove it in court in the same way it was very difficult to prove child sexual abuse, but it was still wrong. Yes, yeah. And as you say, it comes down to uh, respect for each other and, and the basic respect that, that you know, that... You cannot have any type of violence because it is it is a violence against another person. Any type of rape involved, and it's even worse so, I believe, for a woman to be raped because of a, a total. She feels totally invaded her body, all of that, and a lot of them end up, you know, trying to take their own lives afterwards. So it has a huge effect, more so, I think, on a woman than on a man. And therefore, and the church mm. is, has been very silent over the years on this, and and has been. I, I think maybe, maybe not silent enough. <laughs> maybe <laughs> not. Been, uh, maybe a bit too vocal, it would seem, uh, based on what John Paul II had to say. At the mm. same time, mm. it has been vocal in the wrong way. Because like, what would what would John Paul II or any priest know about sex with their wife, for God's sake? Brendan, I have to leave there. I'm sorry I'm out of time, but I have to leave okay, there. And thank Michael. you very much indeed yeah, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Brendan Butler, member of We Are Church Ireland. 
Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages uh, that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all our listeners. Bernadette from Delique phoned in, listening into your interview at the top of the show with Minister Regina Doherty in relation, and says that in relation to her advisor's salary, she says that uh, if uh, the minister needs that level of support. You have to wonder why she is a minister. Why doesn't her advisor go up for election? We cannot afford this type of money. When you say the equivalent to three staff nurses in a hospital, it really brings home the amount of money that's been spent. And in my book, says Bernadette, it's scandalous. On a morning when you have children coming out of hostels and, and places like that, having to walk to school on empty stomach, it's just making my blood boil listening in, oh, Michael. Oh, really? God, OK. Right, that's uh, some strong feelings for us. Rishi from Tala asked the minister why she's the first minister to ignore pensioners. PJ, why not get rid of all the TDs and put the advisors in power instead, Michael? Money mm. better spent. It's like the tail wagging the dog, says yeah. PJ. Okay. Teresa from Navin, I'd love to be a member of that lady's staff. Mm. Uh, and then goes on to say they couldn't afford a measly small rise for the old age pensioners. I think it's a disgrace that the OAPs are forgotten and yet this money can be paid out by the time I I pay Mm. my bills. There's not much left to live in it. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate having the pension but it is tough and then you hear about that money being spent. Yeah, well, and I suppose you could argue as well that uh, when you have somebody else's money to spend, it's easier to spend it and when you're spending it like that and you're paying big wages and paying into pension contributions and all that sort of thing, uh, you don't think for a moment that when employers are forced to pay into their employees' pensions that they won't give pay rises. Anyway, that's another day's work, but I imagine some people will be wondering why their pay hasn't increased uh, and... uh It'll probably have to do with the fact that the employers are putting 6% into their pensions. Mairead from Drogheda says, what is the point in having a cap on salaries when the ministers can just go over it if they want to? I'm sure that that advisor is doing a good job, but I feel it is an obscene amount of money. And Michael, I really feel you're right. Were there not other people who were as well qualified who would have been willing to take 100,000? No, no. Says Mairead. Like, no. that's some amount of money. I think it's actually yeah. still too much yeah. money. Mm. But in all of the people in this country, mm. would there not have been another no. person qualified? No. no, Minister couldn't find anybody else. I did ask her that. She said no. She said she interviewed quite a number of people. Nobody came near the mark. Not a chance. You, you wouldn't get anybody to get out of bed for that sort of money. John is astounded at the money that's been paid out to the special advisor and says that when you add up, he'd love to get a final figure for the amount of money that are paid to all of these people to advise the ministers. Are they not qualified enough to be able to deal with the media? Would they not have dealt with the media before they got elected? Many of them were are from council backgrounds, would have been county councillors. Mm-hmm. And would they not have been used to dealing with the media then? Mm. 
I don't know. The minister gave her answer. She got the best and you have to pay for what you get. And if you get the best, you've got to pay the best salary. And uh, certainly uh, a very uh, good salary anyway uh, that Mr. Connolly is on. Let's uh, talk about something else. Uh, We'll go to Stephen Breen, crime editor with uh, the Irish Sun, who's writing about Cyril McGuinness uh, today. Good morning to you, Stephen, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, Cyril McGuinness uh, now is uh, somebody's name uh, who uh, a lot of people are are mentioning. Uh, The Sun started mentioning this man back in September and he is said to have been behind uh, the abduction, torture uh, and uh, the terrible treatment that was meted out to Kevin Lunny in September. Yeah, he'd be someone who wouldn't be a household name like some of Ireland's most notorious criminals are, but uh, he's been around for about 30 years, uh, based originally from North Dublin, but based in, in the Derry Lynn and Monaghan and Cavan areas over that time. And his career started... Uh, in, in organised crime would have been in, in the the, um, the early 90s he was linked to the professional IRA he was accused of providing safe houses and cars for that movement he didn't uh, support the professional IRA ceasefire he then forged links with continuity members of, of the IRA uh, the real IRA as well but um, it was only in, in 2004 where he really started to make um, serious money from his criminal enterprises and that was him illegally tra- oh Oh, I'm sorry, Stephen, we lost you there. Uh, I'm sorry, the line just dropped out and is there for a yes, moment. He, from, from 2004, um, he, he was identified as a senior player in uh, organised crime by involvement in smuggling, cigarette mm. smuggling, fuel laundering, all across the, the whole border region. But in, in 2006, uh, in two, uh, between 2006 and 2008, he was identified by the Gardaí Stolen Motor Vehicle Unit as someone who was involved in masterminding a stolen plant machinery scam between Holland, Belgium and the UK and Ireland. And indeed, the Belgian police arrested him in Belgium. Um, he, he was um, suspected of involvement of masterminding this whole scheme and he received a seven-year sentence for being the director of an, of an organised criminal gang. And even the Belgians... Uh, the Belgians took him so seriously that when he was extradited from Ireland to Belgium to serve that sentence, um, he was brought by a military helicopter. So he, he's someone who's very prolific in organised crime, someone well known to, on, on, to jurisdictions and to law enforcement agencies across the board. And within days of the, the Kevin Lunny attack, it was no surprise to see him uh, as the chief suspect. A tough man, if ever. Uh, somebody uh, whose associates uh, fondly refer to as Saddam Hussein. Yes, that emerged, and um, we have that in the paper today, that emerged when the Belgian police were um, interrogating his associate, uh, an individual called Damien McPhillips. He received a four-year sentence for his involvement in the stolen plant machinery scam, and during his interviews with the, the Belgian police, uh, McPhillips referred to uh, McGuinness as Saddam uh, because of the, f- the fact of, of the, the former Iraqi dictator's um, notoriety and his uh, propensity for violence, and he equated McGuinness uh, as, as a, uh, just like um, Saddam in terms of his propensity for violence and how he thrived in this notoriety and how he enjoyed this nickname that, that he was given. But, uh, but it also, there was a fear factor there that if he did have this name, um, you know, people would be afraid of him. And, and we, we've seen, you know, in recent years, even going back to 2014, um, his involvement in the, the, the intimidation of the Quinn uh, directors from arson attacks, threats being issued, only to it escalating with the, the abduction of Kevin Nunney. So mm. he definitely lived up to his name. Uh, do we know how he died? 
At, at the minute, um, it's still uh, the, the the belief that he had a suspected heart attack. I mean, he he wasn't well. He was living in England for for some time between uh, England, sorry, and Fermanagh. Um, he had uh, he was on dialysis. He had problems with his kidneys. He was a heavy smoker. You know, he wasn't in good health. So I think the shock of of the the, the police in Derbyshire coming into his um, uh, his safe house because. He was convinced he was safe there. No one knew the location of where he was staying there. He was out of the way because of the heat that was ongoing in relation to the Lunny investigation. And he just collapsed. He turned blue and he hit the floor and he, mm. he just died and suspected a, a massive heart attack. Okay, so the gang leader is deceased, uh, but then there's the gang to contend with, I take it. Yes, not just that. I mean, I, I spoke to Kevin Lunny's uh, brother, uh, Tony, last week, and they were very satisfied with the guard welcome the fact that the searches took place last week in Dublin in Cavan and also in the UK in relation to evidence gathering um, techniques in, in terms of gathering evidence as part of this whole investigation and you know obviously you have the, the gang members who were responsible for the, the abduction and the torture of Kevin Lunny but also when, when, when I spoke to Tony Lunny he, he'd indicated that it's not just the gang members who you know brought Kevin Lunny to an isolated uh, remote location in, in Cavan and, and subjected him to this terrifying ordeal. It's the person who paid for Cyril McGuinness to do this, the person who orchestrated this, the person who mm. they refer to as the paymaster. That's the focus for the Guardi as well, and the hope is that uh, due to the evidence gathered and in, Lund- uh, sorry, in Derbyshire uh, with Cyril McGuinness, the emails, phones, that they maybe be able to big up and uh, build up a big picture. Mm-hmm. And, and was that McGuinness's motivation? Was that Cyril McGuinness's motivation and his gang's motivation that they did this for money? We know the objective is for the directors yes. of Quinn Industrial Holdings to resign. But did they have any interest in that themselves personally either way or were they just in it for the money, in other words? No, going from experience and going from Cyril McGuinness's uh, involvement in organised crime, everything that he did, everything that he was involved in in the past was all about money. I mean, he, he didn't live like a lavish lifestyle like some of the, the, the more well-known, mm. you know, kingpins in Dublin, the flash cars, the, the designer clothing, that type of thing. But when he was arrested in relation to the illegal uh, transporting of the waste, I mean, the, the, the PSNI took £300,000 from him, so he, he did have a lot of money. Mm. And he was also involved in ATM thefts as well in 2010. Indeed, he was arrested in County Kerry at that time over an ATM theft, but there wasn't enough evidence to bring him to justice. But for him, it was all about money. OK, Stephen, we leave there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, as always. Stephen Brain, Crime Editor with The Irish Sun. Now let's go back to the phones and some of uh, the calls and text messages uh, that you've left there, Marie. Yes, Michael, if we can return to that interview with Minister Regina Doherty and some of the other topics you covered. The Public Services card trades wonders why the Minister doesn't seem prepared to listen to the advice of the Data Protection Commissioner. She seems to be intent on not listening to others despite all her media advice. It James texted in to say we were told we had to get that card Michael to access payments etc and that's why many people got the card Okay and just to backtrack I think the Minister would say that she has listened to the advice of uh, the Data Protection Commissioner she doesn't agree with it her officials don't agree with it and I think the Attorney General doesn't agree with it Uh, Jack says that he's annoyed at what could turn out to be a complete waste of money Mm. on these cards and says uh, whatever about the Data Commissioner resigning what about Regina resigning if she's wrong over 
uh, pursuing this. Well, I, I imagine the minister would say there would be no need for that, uh, especially given how she said there would be no need uh, for Helen Dixon to That's resign. That's right. Mm. Uh, James from Navin says he thinks it's ridiculous the amount of fuss that's been made over the public services card. He says, I got one. No big deal, Michael. I think it's a good idea that you could have one card that is acceptable, accepted by all departments. Uh, so many other big issues like homelessness and yet people are up in arms over this. Get over yourselves, says James from Naffin. Good for you, James. <laughs> uh, others would disagree. Absolutely. And then just on the pensions, uh, a listener texted in, some pensioners paid into a private pension. Then when they got to old age, they were taxed heavily on it. So what's the point of a private pension? Another says that we're heading for a, a huge disaster down the road because so many people are living longer. How is the state going to be able to provide for everybody? Mm, well, they'll be putting you into a pension scheme uh, from 2022. Uh, at least that's the plan at the moment. All right. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now we're joined uh, by Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash following on from uh, the Labour conference over the weekend. 600 uh, delegates in Westmeath uh, and uh, I think uh, probably uh, more buoyant to Labour Party than in more recent years according to reports. Good morning to you Jed Nash thanks for, for coming into us. Uh, how did you think the weekend went? I think it went very well um, yeah we had about 600 delegates there uh, on the Saturday night to uh, hear Brendan Howland lay out our platform as we're preparing for the next uh, general election. I'm in the middle myself of uh, writing the manifesto uh, it's been a detailed piece of work over the last 18 t- uh, months mm. to two years and we're focused unashamedly on uh, the issue of addressing economic inequality. I've been arguing within the party now for quite some time that the party needs to essentially get back to basics, get back to our roots uh, and our uh, key pillars as presented at the weekend mm. will revolve around workers' rights and the idea that we should move to a living wage for all workers, uh, that we should move to a free education system for everybody in primary and second level, that we should build 80,000 social and affordable houses over five years at a cost of 16 mm. billion euros and that we should tackle climate change by ensuring that carbon-intensive mm. industries are adapted and that there's a significant funds available that we're going to inject 2 billion euro into a fund mm. to organise what we call a just transition so people are working in carbon-intensive industries to upskill them for the jobs of the future. And your leader... Brendan Howland said uh, that these five core policies, that Labour as a party has five core policies uh, that must be met by anybody who may eventually go into coalition with Labour. But when Labour puts down red lines, uh, they at times get a little bit blotchy, don't they? Well, lessons have been learned and Brendan has been very, very clear um, on this. Um, Not only is it a case that we wouldn't go into government if those five bottom lines weren't addressed, neither would we support Uh, any government in a confidence and supply kind of arrangement or a minority government style arrangement if those demands weren't met and over a time How many red lines were on the Tesco poster that were broken? Um, I don't don't consider those to be red lines. I can completely understand why people would say, well, Ah. a newspaper advertisement was taken out by Aaron Gilmore and so on back in 2011. And the Labour Party was campaigning on the back of them. No water charges. there's There's a difference here, Michael. I mean, some no of those increase issues. in edu- no student fees. Well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll address those concerns. Hmm. Bro- the, the party has explained, and Brendan has explained hmm. very clearly, that those measures were taken, that they were mistakes. Hmm. There was something that I never defended, not something that I advised hmm. would happen back in 2011. The difference now is, I think, those lessons have been learned, and we focus on some very clear policy 
agendas, going back to basics, the roots of the party and why I joined the Labour Party. And I've worked very hard, Michael, within the party as front bench spokesperson on social protection and employment affairs to reorientate the party in that direction because, you know, it was interesting today reading the Irish Independent editorial Basically, saying we we need a Labour Party in this country that's yeah. strong, and we need yeah. one but that actually is very clear. People. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I have to and uh, we've been doing that mm. that work, and mm. in this constituency, I think our very clear message. Why, why, has, why doesn't the Labour Party has, complain has, and admit admit that what went wrong was that some uh, retiring members wanted their last piece of glory, uh, a, a bit of time in the sun uh, as government ministers. Uh, the likes of Eamon Gilmore and Pat Rabbit and so on, who were on the brink of retirement, decided, ah, sure, look, for my own personal gain, it's worth going into coalition with the right-wing party that is Fine Gael, which is at odds with everything that the Labour Party stood for before. Well, I, I don't think that's the case. It's a very simplistic way of looking at it. The easiest thing in the world, uh, as we know from Sinn Féin and left-leaning independence and so on, is to actually just decide to kick back, be in opposition and be commentators in terms of mm. this situation the country finds itself in. Um, we, 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 we had a very clear job in, from 2011-2016 to fix this economy. We've done mm. that. And we've got now, I think, resources available that we could only have ever imagined. Mm. And our concern is that Finnegan and Fianna Fáil are wasting those resources yeah. and are not focusing them on where they're needed most. We don't want to see tax cuts the for most, the, the, the better most off. What right, we want I, to do I've, is I've, make sure I, I, that I've we said, invest in our I've, public I've, services I've said this and make to sure you. that work pays, okay. Mike, but I've said this which is an agenda that I think, and I hope you'd accept, I that I've I've, I've said this to you before, and I'm going to repeat it because I, I, I genuinely mean it. The most right-wing utterances I have heard in decades came from a joint press conference given by Brendan Howland and Michael Noonan when they decided to take some of the lowest paid workers into the PRSI net. And they were suggesting that five euro a week uh, was only a small amount of money and look at the value you were getting for your five euro, which is completely at odds with what should be Labour Party policy, which is the redistribution of wealth and that the very lowest paid people should have their social security looked after by higher earners. Uh, and Brendan Helen was making that Fine Gael argument uh, and that is exactly what went wrong. Just that one incident is a fine example of what went wrong with your party, I would contend. Uh, that's your view and I know what your view is and we've discussed this time and again I mean Michael Watt for the last 10 years I'm not responsible for every decision that Brendan Howland and Michael Noonan Mm -hmm. and everybody else has taken my responsibility now Mm -hmm. is to make sure that the party gets back to basics gets back to its roots and looks at you know what what is our philosophy our philosophy Mm -hmm. is and our ideology should be representing those who have less, mm. those who want to have opportunities mm. to improve can their lives. Can you do it with that man, though, who made those utterances? We, yes, we absolutely can. Okay. We absolutely can, and we will. Um, I think we're in a unique set of circumstances here in Irish politics, I think, where, you know, and, and we have actually taken, we have the courage of our convictions to actually set out what our agenda is. Sinn Féin haven't done that, the Green Party hasn't, no other party in opposition has to say, this is what you're going to get when you vote and if you vote for the Labour Party. And our job is to persuade people to do that with a new generation of people and I consider myself to be a member of a younger generation with a different view about things can, how things should work. And I think my own track record shows that I represent and seek to represent the core values of my party and the broader Labour movement as well as I possibly can. And we've seen some successes in that in terms of minimum wage increases, in terms of trade union rights, uh, in terms of uh, providing decent work for people, the abolition of zero-hour contracts and so on. That's my agenda. And it has been my job the last couple of years to work sometimes quietly in the background, mm. um, but sometimes actually not so quietly in the background, yep. to 
reorientate the party and to make sure that this party is fit for purpose for the next 10 to 20 years. It's got a very clear agenda that we're putting forward to the Irish people. An agenda that is distinct mm. and unique, is different from Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, different from Sinn Féin and the Green Party. What we want to mm. do, though, is actually try and build what Brendan's called a progressive alliance. We yeah. want to work with the Green Party, the Sock Dems, and progressive left-leaning independents to try to create a critical mass where we can actually be the philosophical and ideological driving force mm. of a new government. I'm going to be knocking doors and have been knocking doors and loud against okay. me over the last couple of years to sell that message. And fair I think enough. that message mm-hmm. actually has resonated with people in the context of, for example, the local elections where we've picked up two seats in this area with Councillor Shell Hall and Councillor Annie Hoy. We have two great councillors in Councillor Paul Bell okay. and P.O. Smith. But, and I but think do, we're do, well do you accept the point that I was putting to you? I mean, uh, I mean, to make the points I was putting to you a moment ago in a, a different way, uh, do you accept you have to regain the trust of people? Absolutely, and I want to mm. go back to that Irish Independent editorial that people may have been reading this morning. I may read over a cup of tea or a cup of coffee later yeah. on. Mm-hmm. It says, look, this society, this country needs a strong Labour Party. Mm. It's gone through the history of the party and how it's been a reforming influence in this society. And it absolutely has, and we can and we will be again. And it says, you know, working people need the Labour Party in Leinster House. Mm. People who are prepared actually to provide the solutions that people want to see to make their lives better and I think we can do that I think there's demand for that Mm. my party has made mistakes over the last few years Mm. we have learned from that, we have to apply that learning and that's why we're saying very very clearly we want, it's not even a case that we wouldn't go into government if those five demands weren't met I said in RTE the other day I wouldn't even entertain a conversation Mm. with Leo Varadkar or Micheál Martin if they weren't prepared to accede to those very five basic demands around living wage Mm. free education for primary and second level uh, students and a just transition in okay. terms of and we change. have it on tape now so it's on tape <laughs> you know we can pull out that tape at a, a future date if needed uh, as you know so so that's the position the Labour Party is taking in respect of those issues let's talk about race uh, because uh, this was interesting I think and I, I think uh, to some degree, Brendan Helen has to be congratulated because uh, he's uh, one of... Uh, that's, that's not like you, Michael. <laughs> oh, no. I jest. No, I mean, he did accuse the Taoiseach of uh, sending out mixed messages. Uh, I, I think he fell short of outlining the reality uh, that the Taoiseach is guilty of hate speech. Um, I, I don't know if I'd go that far, but um, well, he, I was he, concerned he, when I read in the Sunday Business Post. Thing, every Georgian that, in this country yeah. is a sponger. Every Albanian in this country is a sponger. That's the message that the Taoiseach clearly sent out to people. And it's completely untrue. I think he needs to be very careful with his language, particularly in the kind of toxic environment that we have now where TD's cars have been burned because they've mm. taken a position in relation to asylum seekers, where there have been protests from people in Ackle mm. um, because a did number you read of about asylum the, seekers... Did you read about uh, the, the woman from Georgia uh, who was in front of the High Court last week? Uh, I didn't was, know, but she, I tell you... She, I d- she, she was a journalist uh, and she was beaten by the authorities, tortured by the authorities, uh, to such a degree that she needed surgery because I think she lost an eye and uh, they broke her nose and did all sorts of terrible things to her and she fled Uh, and after uh, a number of years here uh, she came forward to say that she was here illegally uh, and they immediately moved to deport her. Uh, The judge said it was like something uh, from Animal Farm the way Napoleon treated uh, people in George Orwell's novel. I, I think, and this is this goes back to the Labour Party has shown courage, Michael, over the years and transforming our society and calling these kind of things. But she's not a sponger. Action. Absolutely she's not. She's somebody who fled for her I'll tell you this. I, I am dealing with a number of mm. uh, uh, asylum seekers from Albania. Mm. As the T-shirt has singled out Albania mm. for criticism as well. Um, the most generous the people in the world. The situations that 
those people have outlined to me the most and the generous, evidence that they've provided to the me the most generous in terms people of their applications for asylum status the in most generous the most very clear the most generous people in the world are the albanians and i, I say that from first hand experience standing on the border of kosovo watching the waves of people come over the border. As we stood on the border during the Kosovo War, we could see we could see the rape camps and we could hear the gunshots. And we knew that the men were being shot dead in front of the women before the women were raped and sent on their way with their children, with their life's belongings on the back of a trailer uh, on little tractors as they came across the border into a country that has nothing, nothing, no obvious way of making a living. And those people welcomed them with open arms. It was also, I think, uh, the point that the Taoiseach seemed to have been um, trying to make, uh, I don't accept it, was that somehow Georgia and Albania are stable political systems. Some people would argue that they are. Um, by some international metrics, they are. I don't agree. I'll tell you why I don't agree. Uh, just this morning, I was actually reading a piece in relation to the arrest of 25 gay men in Georgia for going to see a movie in relation to rights for gay people. Uh, now, that's not the kind of society... I mean, we've got a Taoiseach who himself is gay, who's mixed race, um, who should have an understanding uh, of the challenges faced by the LGBT plus community internationally. Um, so if we're saying, well, everything's fine in Georgia and nobody mm. should flee, everything's fine in Albania, it's not. I'm mm. dealing with many cases of those who are actually living in direct provision mm. in Mosny at the moment. Um, people who are fleeing what I can only describe as a corrupt um, judicial and policing system. I'm sure there's people from Georgia um, and Albania who have uh, legal status, uh, who have uh, the right to be here and work and residency and so on because uh, of uh, other circumstances, whether that's family circumstances or not. But they've all contrib- been tarred. Contributing to our economy, they've contributing to our society, ra- raising Doctors, nurses, as whatever. Albanian Irish yep. or Georgian Irish or whatever They're all the tarred with be. the same brush. Yeah, no, it's the not Taoiseach on. Said it's all, not on. The Taoiseach said they're all spongers. I mean, that was the impression that a lot of people must have taken and, from him saying that they're all economic migrants. And, and, and that's why Brendan Howland called it out and he's right to do that. But he um, said there were the mixed weekend. messages. Should he, I mean, would you go further and say well, that think, it was I, a I hate think people, speech? I think people can read between the lines on that. I'm not so sure and I'm not going to call the Taoiseach out hate speech and I don't believe that we should be doing that here today because that hate speech is, is, is awful. It's dreadful. This is unacceptable what the Taoiseach said. We've called it out. Uh, I think there's a responsibility mm. on the Taoiseach to... To dial down his okay, language on this, okay, particularly in the kind not, of environment I don't believe that the Taoiseach is a racist. Okay, I'm not if that's what you're asking me, oh, I don't well, believe that he is. Oh, well, I think he's probably I, playing the race card. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. And there's a populist mo- card here. Well, well and, and, I, I think and, if you may be taken that that particular message might be for a particular audience to hear, which I think is very concerning. Yeah, that's the point. Very concerning. We might call dog whistle stuff. So throw that out there and people read between the lines and interpret it in a certain way. That's why particularly our Taoiseach, our Prime Minister, needs to be careful. You see, the thing, the the reason I'm asking you about it, apart apart from like the Taoiseach putting his two big feet in it, uh, apart from that, the reason I'm asking about it is that it is a very serious issue and it leads uh, to other consequences and other actions and every action has a consequence and people can end up very hurt or, or, or dead is a, a case People of fueling up this People sort of thing. Targeted. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a call as a I'm result charged. of that to introduce hate speech legislation. Now, in order to do that, you need to define it. Yeah, and, and we don't have that definition mm. in Ireland. That's been a problem yeah. for the, the last few years, and there's been consistent calls actually for uh, anti, you know, hate, but if you go around saying if you go around saying everybody from Cork is a sponger, uh, and you can't say whether that's hate speech or, or not, 
Uh, well, then, well, that's why we need legal definitions of what that, that involves and how okay. you define that. Um, it's something I want to... I mean, we, we've seen it. Um, I've had cases brought to me as a, an Oireachtas member, but what I can only define as violence as a result of, you know, mm. hate. Um, and, and it's actually not a discreet offence mm. in Irish law. We have many, many, thankfully, you know, pieces of strong um, anti-discrimination uh, legislation, mm-hmm. but not clearly defined hate speech okay. or hate crime just talk, just, just talk to me about uh, the retirement age. Uh, Regina Doherty was uh, telling me this morning that when I retire, which is uh, when I'm 100, <laughs> that I'll have a pension, uh, whether I want it or, or not. Uh, you're going to bring that uh, retirement age yeah. down from 100. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way things are going, I think we'll all be working yeah. till, till the, the day we sh- shuffle off our mortal coils. But in, in any case... Going back to 2008-2009, actually, the then Fidefall Minister introduced a kind of timeline where we would be extending the um, retirement age um, uh, by year, every few years. And the argument was it was based on a couple of things. The social insurance fund was in difficulty. um, People were living longer, living healthier, so on and so forth. Um, I've been in discussions for some time now with experts in this area, and we've been actually looking at, as well, apart from the fact that it's the right thing to do, all of the economic evidence around this. Uh, and we believe there's a strong case to be made for uh, essentially cancelling uh, the increase in the retirement age to 67, uh, keeping it uh, at 66 for a, a, an extended period of time. We now actually have a social insurance fund um, because people contribute to it, and everybody, as you were saying earlier, was contributing to it. Uh, even those who might consider it to be in lower pay were contributing to it. And remember, Michael, as well, I invested heavily, actually, in, mm. in dealing with PRSI, PRSI issues, taking people out of the PRSI net who are paying, being paid a minimum wage. So mm. I want to acknowledge that. You may yeah. have said that back in 2011, Brendan Hill mm. and Michael Noonan yep. took a particular view. Mm. And it was uh, undone, yes. I, 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 I undid that. Yes. Uh, and I made sure that those on the minimum wage. And I made sure, mm. as well, that employers weren't mm. paying more PRSI when the minimum wage went up. And that's, I think we can all agree, is a good thing. So anyway, the bottom line is, one of the key objectives for us is to make sure that the retirement age uh, doesn't meet 67 because we've people going on to transi- transitional welfare payments, job seekers payments, when they, in my view, shouldn't be. The um, Social Insurance Fund uh, is now in surplus of €4 billion. Euros, and people, after many, many, many years of working, should have the opportunity to enjoy their retirement. In fact, what I'm looking at at the moment is a radical proposal where some people might be in a position to be able to retire after 40, 41, 42 years of work, particularly those who left school, yeah. uh, maybe at 15, 16, working on building sites and so on. And, yeah, so on. Yeah, yeah. and there's a strong yeah. argument for that. Very strong It'll cost money, that, yeah. mm. um, but people who are working, you know, we, we've people who are working mm. on building sites since they were 15, 16, mm. physically in great difficulty, yeah. maybe by the time that they're in their mid-50s, yeah. should be entitled to the prospect of, of, mm. of retiring yeah. uh, with some state support and indeed we would hope as well with yeah. not, not, not having to claim unemployment benefits and be sent Absolutely. off of courses and all you know, that. Yeah. So we have society in some ways is divided and you know we, you, you have situations where people are working in very labour intensive industries uh, having left school at a younger age and then sometimes you have people who don't start in the workplace till their mid to yeah. late 20s yeah. Yeah. Uh, and are enjoying the same retirement benefits. And it's the construction workers who pay for their education. In, entirely yeah. yeah people who are mm. yeah, yeah everybody contributes mm. to pay for our public education system mm. and so on so you know we need just to look at that smartly uh, and uh, reward those who have been working in tough, labour-intensive, hard industries for a long number of years and allow them to retire potentially 
uh, at an earlier stage with full pensions. It's something we're looking at at the moment. Uh, I'm not that sure that it's going to be achievable. Okay. It's something that we're looking at uh, in an evidence-based fashion um, to see if it's doable, uh, see if it's affordable, okay. because it's something that I, ah, right. I'm ambitious to try okay. to do. And as part of the Labour Party finding its feet, again, if I can put it that way, uh, following on from the conference this weekend. We leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed for, for coming in to us uh, this morning. Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we'll talk uh, some more about uh, some of uh, the people who come uh, to uh, this country and try to adopt Ireland as uh, their home country. Uh, there's many challenges involved in it. Language can be one of them. Falcha Stock is a nationwide community project which is run by Third Age. It helps to integrate migrants and asylum seekers into local communities. Locally, the programme operates in nine different locations throughout County Louth and Meath. Marie Kearns has been visiting one of the centres in Ashburn. It's 11 o'clock on a Wednesday morning and the Falja is Jock class at Ashburn Library is in full swing. While recent headlines could give the impression that Irish communities no longer offer migrants and asylum seekers a warm welcome to this country, the Falja is Jock programme, an initiative of the Summerhill-based Third Age, proves that this is not the case. Launched in 2006 in response to the observed daily difficulties that new migrants were experiencing integrating into the local community through a poor understanding or lack of English, the programme is delivered voluntarily by 1,100 trained volunteers around the country. Liam Carey, the programme manager with Third Age, told me what he thinks is unique about this particular initiative. Well, what I think is unique about it is that people in communities are getting together to respond to a local need. Um, That local need is that they see people within their own communities who have poor or lacking English language skills, the skills that they need to survive in in a community, so to do their shopping, to go to the doctors, to go to the schools, handle issues in schools. And they're saying, well, actually, we can do something about this. So with a little bit of support from Third Age uh, through our programme, Falchus Jock, we're bringing a programme to communities where local members of the community address a local need. And I think that's what's important about the programme. We're teaching English uh, to migrants, but really it's an integration programme. It's, it's helping them understand Irish ways. It's helping them understand the community. It's helping them find out what's going on in the community while they're learning English. Um, so an example might be, you know, one of our members, knows that you know the GA training is at 11 o'clock and they're telling new people to the community that there's football training on you know bring your bring your young fellow along bring your young daughter along and they'll, they'll enjoy it and get involved in the community so things like that there's it's building a social network a stronger social network for everyone within the community and um, it benefits nobody uh, no community if people feel that they're not part of it if so if they feel that they're welcome in the community and that the resources of the community are there for them as much as anyone else and they'll get involved and get active in it but then they play a part within communities as well to make it much much a stronger and a better place to live irish people are great people and irish people like helping their neighbours and like doing positive things um so we're here in ashburn today but there's 132 of these branches all around the country doing really positive things not looking for applause, not looking for uh, attention, just wanting to do a good thing to help their community and help people within their community Um, so 
sure there's negative stories out there and they they will get attention uh, uh, clearly but um there's also really really positive stuff happening um and i think it's touching in what's innate in all of us that we we do like to help people we do want to want to make our where we live a good place to live for everyone in that community and um and and this is one of those responses Bruno, who moved to Ashburn from Argentina, says that the Falcha Jack programme has benefited him in numerous ways. I'm I'm attending the class for two months now, so yes, yes, it's really fun and I learn a lot, so yeah. And why did you come to the class? Uh, I want to get more confident in my English and know new people, so it's a good way to, to do it. Because it must be quite daunting moving from somewhere like Argentina. Mm-hmm. And has it been a huge change for you? Yeah, um, so-so, because uh, I've lived in a small town in Argentina, and Nashville is a small town, so... Uh, uh, there are similarities. Yeah, yes, yes. Yes, and uh, I like the the people in Ireland, so it's a very good place. Yeah. <laughs> and have you met new people now through this Falchis Jack class? Yeah, yes. Just, uh, I'm looking forward to to meet new people. So yeah. Volunteer Mick O'Rourke, coordinator of the Ashburn class, says it's one of the most rewarding things he has ever done. I was asked uh, at one stage when I volunteered, and I had just retired. Uh, it was something that I was always interested in. When I was working, I recognised that in some cases people had a difficulty uh, integrating, and particularly in their understanding of Irish culture. Uh, you know, we have to appreciate uh, their culture as well, and I felt it was worthwhile. I was looking for something basically to occupy. You know, I have a fairly healthy life at home, but I was looking for something outside of the house and something that I was interested in. And I figured it would benefit the community that I was working in. So what would your typical class involve? Uh, Basically, it's conversation. And really, I've discovered more holiday places to visit as a result of that in different parts of the world. It's certainly my knowledge of culture and geography from people from uh, right back to... We have a number of Syrian people... They've told me about their country. Uh, we have a number of some people from Libya. Uh, we have some people from France and Spain who come here as our pairs. Some people who are living here and working here and with their families raised have come into the workforce and are looking for something to do in the evening. So you have a morning class and, and an, an evening, evening class. class. Yeah, We have two different groups. We'd have a lot of our pairs too as well. Uh, like they fall between the cracks sometimes when they visit here and that they come through an organisation. Approximately 24 people attend the class every Wednesday morning, including Nita, who took some time out to talk to me. I, I'm from Spain. Uh, I moved here at the end of the August with my family. Uh, you know, because I, I want that my children uh, learn a good English. So uh, we, we come with them, and they are at school, and they are very happy. Uh, my husband goes to Spain and, and come back. So he works and he goes yes, to and from. Yes, yes. And you're here in Ashburn Library today because you're trying to improve your English. Yes, yes, I'm learning English, yes. I need to improve, but uh, I'm very happy here. Uh, because, uh, you know, uh, we are here because, uh, first of all, because we have the, the euro. It's more easy for the Spanish people to live here. But uh, secondly, because uh, the Irish people are, uh, we feel that the Irish people are friendly with us. Uh, we, we have some problem. Uh, everybody help us. Alina, where are you from? 
Hello, uh, I am from Moldova. Uh, I have two years, I live two years here, and um, I come to, I come uh, here to improve my English. This is your first day at Falchus, yeah. Jack. Yes, this is my fourth day, and I enjoy here because this is, here's a nice people and uh, very friendly. And they, uh, I, I know in the future I will, uh, I will improve my English. <laughs> The English is very important to know for the, for the job and uh, for everything because if you go everywhere, you, it's better to know the English and uh, for everything, yes, it's very important. Brian Ellis, you're a volunteer with Folgers Jock in Ashburn for the last three years. What's the biggest benefit you feel that the people who come here, what, what do you think they get out of the class? Well, I, I think... People get on well with the other people who turn up at the class and they're from very different backgrounds and from all parts of the world. We've had people from South America, from the Middle East, from Africa, Asia and uh, quite a number from Eastern Europe as well. I think the biggest benefit for them is to be able to meet different people and to share their common experiences and to um, help improve their English. And I know that the people who have been here for a number of months in particular, they are able to speak English much better and with more confidence than they would have been originally. And would you help with things like CVs and that type of stuff, forms? or? Yes, indeed. Uh, a number of people have asked me to help with CVs and I happily I've been able to do that. I have some experience in interviewing for jobs myself so um, I've been able to impart that experience into this organisation. And as a volunteer do you get a lot of satisfaction from it? Well absolutely I wouldn't be doing it for three years if I wasn't really enjoying it and I've met some lovely people and uh, I've had some very good times here. Falcha Estjok is run by Third Age. Brian Ellis, a volunteer in Ashburn, finishing uh, that report there from Marie Kearns. Michael Reed on LMFM. We've just a couple of minutes left with you today, so let's use uh, the short time uh, that we have uh, together to come back uh, to some more of uh, the calls and comments that have been coming to us from you. Marie, you've uh, some more comments. I have indeed, yeah. Michael. Just some in relation to your interview there with Senator Gerald Nash in relation to the Labour Party conference at the weekend. A texter says, how can the Senator say the economy is fixed when we are still play- paying the universal social charge that that was brought in when things were bad and was supposed to be done away with so to speak Uh, I voted Labour for years says Mary who phoned in I'd like to think that they would make a difference if they did get the chance to go into government again but I just don't know there were far too many uh, broken promises the last time out Uh, Tom says that Labour needs to get together with the other left leaning groupings Mm. uh, that are running in the next election and form an option for people who are fed up with the current Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil government. Yeah, I don't know uh, <laughs> if uh, that's uh, a runner. I'm not sure if uh, uh, there's been a- enough water under the bridge. Uh, there was a lot of things uh, that happened, a lot of things that were said uh, at the time. And uh, I think uh, a lot of uh, the people who are involved in the other left-leaning parties, as our caller puts yes. it, uh, will remember that uh, the Labour Party would have called them the loony left. <laughs> 
Uh, and uh, I think many people in uh, the Labour Party will remember how the loony left said the Labour Party had sold out. But well, Mark, anyway, mm. Mark says that he'd mm. be happy to give his vote to Labour if, mm. and it's a mm. big if, uh, he, they were guaranteed. They guaranteed him that they wouldn't go into government with either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael mm. because he just does not think that would do the party any yeah. good. Maybe that would uh, make a, a difference, uh, but uh, it doesn't seem to be the position of uh, the Labour Party. No. They've set down their five red lines as such. Yes, uh, is that the same Labour Party? Says a texter that uh, told everybody that water charges would never come into Ireland. Yeah, we did mention that a little bit earlier on, but it is yes, absolutely. Going back then to your interview with uh, Minister Doherty, uh, Carla was in touch to say that Regina Doherty has a very important brief and all in all, I think she appears to be doing a good job, but I feel she hasn't done herself any favours. Firstly, in relation to the public services card and her resolute stance in relation to that and also over this salary for her so-called spin doctor. I don't think that any... um, Advisor should be paid over the cap because the cap is there for a reason. Yeah, well, the they cap is ginormous, as they say. I mean, <laughs> it's a hundred and one thousand four hundred euro or something like that a year. It's a, a, a huge salary, and uh, there wouldn't be a mention of it uh, if that's all. <laughs> the advisor was being paid if that's all or less uh, and many of I think most of the advisors if not all of the advisors uh, are being paid less than that as things stand uh, and it's only because it's being breached and breached by some €6,000 that it's become an issue We had a phone call from a listener didn't want to give her name just to say listening into your interview this morning Michael I get paid €32,000 I have to get up early every morning to drive into Dublin drop my children to childcare I am just fuming listening to the amount of money that's been spent on that advisor. Well, that advisor is paid to tell you what you think. And I don't think that's what you think. So get over it. <laughs> and you know I'm being <laughs> you facetious. That, yes. You know I'm being facetious. All right, I have to leave there. We are out of time. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hold up. 
the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.